I am a list maker. My, my days are structured around my lists. I, I don't know what I would do if I did not have my lists. In part, I think that in many ways I'm a list maker because my father was a list maker. I remember as a child and He'd call me and to say, we need to talk about some things. And I'd go in and he'd get his little list out. And it's on a three-by-five card. And he has listed everything he needed to make sure he talked to me about. And that happened all the way, by the way, until I went home even as an adult. And he'd write things on the three-by-five card, things I need to talk to Craig about when he comes home. Uh, my, in fact, when I had chores to do, my sister and I had chores as young children and older children, he would give us a list. Right, on a little three-by-five card of the things that we needed to get done. I hated those lists. <laughs> My sister and I frequently mocked those lists. And now that I'm grown, I make those lists. I don't use three-by-five cards. I have a digital list that's synced between my phone and my computer that I can alter any, way, any place, anywhere. But the lists are there. They help me focus on what needs to get done. And they, need, they help me focus and prioritize what are the most important things that need to get done on a particular day or a particular week or a particular season. We all have our lists, right? Do you have your lists? Maybe you're not as, hmm, can we be nice and use the word meticulous? Um, maybe you're not as meticulous with your lists as I and my father are. But you have, we all have our list. We have some ways of prioritizing what's most important that needs to get done. Well, this morning, can I ask you, where is prayer on your list? As followers of Jesus Christ, I don't think we need to hear again that prayer is important for the Christian. We see the examples of prayer throughout God's scriptures. The Bible specifically lists 650 different prayers we see the gospel writers specifically point out Jesus' prayer life 25 times. I'll tell you what, if Jesus needed to pray, if he needed time with the Father, I'll tell you what, I'm no Jesus, and neither are you, right? We definitely then need time to pray, time with the Father. We also see that Jesus expects his followers to pray. As, as, as Elias read from Matthew chapter 6 today, Jesus says, when you pray... And then he teaches his followers how to pray. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, part of what that looks like is you're someone who prays. And as we're continuing in this series on church basics, of the very basics of what we do as a church, in this last section, these last few weeks, we're, we're talking about the work of the church, the, the work of the church in service and edification. Next couple of weeks, the work of the church in missions and evangelism. One of the most important works we can do as a church is through our prayers and our membership covenant which expresses how we're to live with one another as a church. We've committed to pray for each other and for the church. So part of what it means to be a part of Oakhurst EV Free Church is that we pray. We pray for ourselves, for others, and for the church. And that leads us to a question that I want to look at from, from the Word of God this morning, and that is, how should we pray as a church? I, I want to assume that we're praying because God has called us to do so, but how are we to pray as a church. If prayer is a priority for a follower of Christ, if prayer is a priority for a faithful church, then how does Jesus teach us that we should be praying? 
There's a lot of different texts and scripture we could have gone to. I, I had Elias read Matthew 6 because it's another excellent scripture to think about prayer as Jesus gives us a, a sample prayer to teach us. But I want to look at Luke 18 this morning. Luke tells us that he's writing this research eyewitness account of Jesus' life, but he also tells us it's an ordered account in Luke 1, that he has intentionally selected parts of these eyewitness accounts in order to teach what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And we see this sort of orderly account in Luke 18. Just look at this beginning of this chapter for a moment. Luke 18, 1. We see a parable with a purpose. Always keep praying to God and not lose heart. Luke 18, 10 is a parable about two men going to the temple to pray to God. Luke 18, 15, we're looking at people approaching Christ, coming to Christ. Well, what do we call that process of, of coming to Christ with our requests? It's prayer, right? So in this section, Luke is helping us to see through these different accounts the teaching about how we should pray. So let's first look, the first way we should be praying as a church. We should pray persistently. We should be a church who prays persistently. Look at Luke 18, 1 with me. And he, Jesus, told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Sometimes Jesus' parables are tough to interpret. What is the point of the parable? But there's no question here. Jesus is just plain tells us, here's the meaning of the parable. The, 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 the focus of the parable isn't about the character of the judge. It's not about the request of the widow but he tells them this parable to the effect that or to show that what? They should always pray and not lose heart. Well, well, let's look at this parable together. Look at verses two through five. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterwards he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. So here's the parable. It's very, very simple, right? There's two characters. There's a judge who we're told he's not accountable to anything outside himself. He, he neither fears God nor respects man. Basically, the, the, the only things he cares about, the only standard of his justice is his own opinion and his own self-interest. That's all that matters to him. And then there's a widow in this parable. In the ancient world, that widows were in a precarious situation. There was no social services. There was no safety net. Widows were completely dependent on the good that the others could help them with. Often one's family would care for widows, but as we see in this description, she comes to the judge by herself, which we see from the context would mean that she has no family to take care of her. And in, the, in this parable the widow persistently comes to the judge over and over again asking for justice jesus doesn't tell us what this justice is about or what happened or who this adversary is because that's not what's important for jesus it, it, it's not the request that's important it's the persistence that jesus is trying to teach about and we see the judge initially refuse her request right? We, we don't see why. Jesus doesn't tell us why. Is it a, the judge is lazy or did the judge prefer her adversary? We don't know. It doesn't matter. That's not Jesus' point in the story. But then comes this res surprising result that Jesus gives that the judge finally changes his mind. In fact, Jesus finds this, this twist in the story so important, it, Jesus actually makes us all mind readers, right? 
Jesus actually lets us go inside the mind of the judge to hear his thoughts to see why, the, why he would change his thinking. He didn't change his mind because his heart grew three sizes, right? He's not like the Grinch. It's not because he had some moral enlightenment. But as we look at the judge's own thoughts, that the only reason he changed his mind is because of the widow's, what? Persistence, right? It was out of sheer practicality that he granted her request. He did not want her to keep bothering him because her persistence would beat him down. If you have an NASB version of the Bible, uh, it, it has a footnote for that phrase that it can literally mean to hit me under the eye. Literally, this judge is saying, this woman is Rocky Balboa. I knock her down, and she gets up and hits me back. And I knock her down, and she hits me two times. And I knock her down, and she hits me three times. She's not going to stop until I'm literally black and blue. It'll be, she's going to be the end of me and my reputation. That's the only reason why he changed his mind, is her persistence. And so look at Jesus' conclusion about this parable. Look at verses 6 through 8. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Let's think about what the focus Jesus has of this parable. The focus, again, is not the widow's request for justice because he doesn't give any details that, about that. This could be any prayer that, that would cause us to be anxious about anything. The point's not about the comparison between the judge and God because we know that God is not like the judge, that, that, that God is, is compassionate and merciful, a just and righteous God. But those aren't the points here. The point, listen to what Jesus says, hear what the unrighteous judge, what? says. That's what Jesus wants us to pay attention to. Hear what he says. Listen to his words. That's the key to the parable. The word the judge is saying in his mind that caused him to change his behavior. It's the persistence of the widow. That's the point here. Here's Jesus' argument, just to boil it down. If a selfish and immoral judge would finally answer a request after such persistence, how much more would God, our compassionate and righteous God, certainly answer the prayers of his children when they pray? That, that's what Jesus is saying here. Here's the point. God wants us to be persistent in our prayers. He, he wants us to not be anxious about anything, but in everything to persistently and consistently, again and again and again, day after day and day and night, he wants us to bring our prayers to him because he is a God who loves his people and he hears and answers his people's prayers. And then look at Jesus' last question there. He says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? There's a context here of Jesus' return, but think about what the question is in this context of the parable and prayer. When it comes to prayer, we often have questions about God, right? When we, we ask these questions about, why hasn't God answered? I mean, I've been praying for like three weeks. Does, does he hear my prayer? Does he know what's going on? Does he care? Does someone need to wake him up? But those aren't Jesus' questions, right? That's not what Jesus has asked the question about. 
He knows God hears. He knows God cares. He know God, knows God answers. Instead, his question, his focus is not about God. His question is about us, right? Will we have the kind of faith that persistently turns to God in prayer? We're going to have all kinds of things that are in opposition to our prayers, all kinds of things that are going to compete on your to-do list, all kinds of discouragement that may come with our prayers. But do we have the sort of faith in God that would cause us to always pray, consistently pray, persistently pray, and not lose heart? How should we pray as a church? We should be praying persistently because God loves his people and he hears and answers our prayers. Now let's think about this practically for a moment, can we? That this means that there are certain things that we should be praying about consistently and persistently, that we are praying these same sort of thing, about the same sort of things day after day after day after day. Well, what are some of these same old persistent things we pray about? Well, it's probably the things that we pray you pray about, right? We pray about our family and our friends. We pray about finances. We pray about things at work or things at school. We pray about things that, that are going on with church or a ministry you're involved in. We, we pray about whatever certain crises that are popping up in life. And Jesus says, we should be praying about those things. When it's like, oh man, I've been praying about these every day. Jesus is saying, yes, that's the point. You need to persistently keep praying about these things in our lives. But at the same time, if we start thinking more in the Bible, the, the, Jesus says it's not just the, 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 the things about me that we pray for. It's not just about my little circle of friends and family and church. And it's not just about my little circle here because God is a God that's much bigger than the God of my little circle, right? That, that we need to be praying for God's will to be done on earth as it is in, as in heaven. That's, that's, that's much more than just praying about things in our little circle. I like the story that pastor and theologian John Stott once recounted, how he visited a church. He visited incognito on vacation, and he sat in the back row, and he talks about the prayer of the church that day. He says this, quote, When it was time for the pastoral prayer, it was led by a lay brother because the pastor was on holiday. So he prayed for the pastor that he might have a good holiday. Well, that's fine. Pastor should have good holidays. Amen. Second, he prayed for a lady member of the church who was about to give birth to a child, that she might have a safe delivery, which is fine. We should pray for that. Third, he prayed for another lady who was sick, and then it was over. That's all there was. It took 20 seconds. Then listen to Stott's assessment of this prayer. He said, I said to myself, this is a village church with a village God. They have no interest in anything outside their own world. They have no thinking about anyone but themselves. No interest in the poor or the oppressed or the refugees or the places of violence. No, no concern for the lost or world evangelization. Unquote. My friends, I don't want my prayers to reflect a village God. I don't want the prayers of our church to reflect a village God. We, because we pray to the God of heaven and earth. And that's what the Bible describes. We, we should be praying about things about, yes, persistently about our circle and our lives, but also things that are much bigger than us. We should be praying for the governing authorities over us. First Timothy 2. Don't just complain, Pray. Right? We want to pray for the governing authorities over us. We want to pray for our missionaries. Colossians 4, 2 through 3. <clears throat> we should be praying for other churches, both other churches in America and also around the world. Ephesians 6, 18. We should pray for the persecuted brethren. Our, our, our brothers and sisters in Christ who are being persecuted around the world. Hebrews 13, 3. We should pray for our pastors. Ephesians 6, 19 and 20. That verse always strikes me because Paul asks for help. For he's asking for the Ephesians to pray for him, to help him preach the gospel. 
I'll tell you what, if the apostle Paul needs help to preach the gospel, man, I definitely need help, right? Your pastors definitely need help. We're thankful to be your pastors, but we're no apostle Pauls, right? And so there's, there's things that we should be praying for, that all those should also be some of those same old things that we persistently pray about day after day after day. We should be persistently praying about these same things. But here's the question. How do we pray about those same things? Right? Because I don't know about you guys, but sometimes I know that it's like, okay, I'm just going to say the same old things about the same old things today on my list. Right? It's almost that your prayer can be boring. It's like you're just reciting those same old lists. It's like the story that's told about the girl whose parents would have her say the same prayer before bed every night. So you know what she did? She got a tape recorder, taped it, so when it's time to pray, she could just play, right? Smart girl. <clears throat> Do sometimes our prayers sound like or feel like tape recordings, right? Okay, mealtime, this is what we pray. Okay, here's my list, here's what I pray. And, and it's just, you're stuck saying the same old things about the same old things, and, and it just gets weighed down. If you feel like that, I want to encourage you this morning, you're not alone. There was a man named George Mueller who felt the exact same way. Now, if you don't know about George Mueller, George Mueller was an extraordinary man of prayer. George Mueller in his journal had over 50,000 specific answers to prayer that God had answered. Over 30,000 of those requests, God answered in the very same day that George Mueller prayed them. George Mueller uh, spent a good part of his life building orphanages and he built orphanages that supported over 10,000 orphans during his time. And he never asked for a dime. He simply prayed, and God provided. Mueller would spend hours each day in prayer. But he said for the first 10 years of his Christian life, he struggled with prayer. You say, what? That, that got my attention, right? This guy struggled with prayer? Well, it's tough to pray about the same old things right? With the same, about the, the, say the same old things about the same old things. But then 10 years in, Mueller said he found this, this amazing example of how to pray. It's, it's an example we see in the Bible that people in the Bible used other parts of the Bible to pray. We, we see this in Acts 4, that the disciples do this, and Jesus does this in Matthew 27, 46, is that, see, when you, when you use scripture to pray, you pray about those same old things, but you're not saying the same old things about the same old things. That makes sense? It, 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 you pray about those same old things, but you, use, you have new ways to pray about them. In fact, you have God's own insight about how to pray for them from God's word. And let me tell you, this just revolutionized my prayer life. Because I, I remember going, okay, it's prayer time. Here's my list. Okay, I'm just going to say the same old things I always say. And it just, it just, it just seems weighed down, right? But then when you, you start saying, start to think, how does God want me to pray about these things? And, and I want to give credit to, to Dr. Donald Whitney, who was, who was influential. He's the one who had that phrase, saying the same old things about the same old things. And just saying, you need to pray scripture. In fact, he wrote a little book I'd recommend called Praying the Bible. And it's just, that, that's what we need to do. One of the ways you can do this is you can pray through Paul's prayers. In fact, if you have your, your uh, sermon notes on the, on the back, I had Trish print out a list of prayers that D.A. Carson collected of either prayers or exhortations to prayers or examples of prayers that, that, that Paul does. And you can take one of those. There's actually in the foyer, if you want the version with all the scriptures written out, they're in the foyer for you. But just what a wonderful tool 
just to take that, take one of Paul's prayers, and read through that and pray in the same way Paul does. So if you take the first one there, if you take uh, Romans 1, Romans 1 says, At first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported for all the, uh, through all the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit, preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And so he, he, he talks about his prayer to God in that way. And so you can pray in a similar way. How does that make you think about how to pray for those same old things? Paul starts with thanking. You start with thanking. Thank God for your family or your church or your finances, your job, things that oftentimes you complain about. Maybe you start by thanking God for those things. You start to pray for the faith, as Paul talks about praying. Pray for the faith of your children. Pray for the faith of your friends. Pray, pray for the faith of, of, of your neighbors. You, you can pray for the service of our church and for missionaries. Pray for the service of other gospel churches in Oakhurst and around the world, and so forth and so forth and so forth. Whatever Paul has, you can pray about those same old things, but, but using Paul's way of thinking about those things. What I personally do, what I'd recommend, is another way you can pray through the Psalms. It, it, and, and there's another tool that I, I wanted Trish to, to get into you guys' hands. And that's this little bookmark if you grab it. This, this is what I use. This is my prayer life. This is what I love to do during my prayer times is that you can pray through a psalm. And Donald Whitney recommends this in his book. He calls the Psalms of the Day. There's 150 psalms. There's 30 days in a month, right? So 150 divided by 30, that's five psalms a day. I did the math for you, so in case you were worried there, you don't have to do it. So that's five psalms a day. So you start with whatever day it is, that psalm. Yesterday was the 23rd. So you start with Psalm 23, and you just keep adding 30. So I, I looked at Psalm 23, 53, 83, 113, 143, right? If you're not as good at math, it might take you a little bit longer, but that's okay. And, and you just scan those five psalms. You have five different psalms you can use to pray for that day, and you pick one. So let's say I, I picked Psalm 23 yesterday, which I did. And, and, and you just start praying. The first line of Psalm 23 is, the Lord is my shepherd, right? How does that inform those same old things you pray about? How can you pray for God to be a shepherd to you in your work situation? How could you pray for God to be a shepherd to you in your singleness? How could you pray for a God to be a shepherd for you in your marriage? How do, you, how do you pray for God to be a shepherd to our church leadership? How could God be a shepherd for our persecuted brethren around the world? Then the next phrase in the psalm is, I shall not want. Well, there's some things to pray for, right? Are there some wants that you're anxious about that you need to bring before the Lord? Are there some other people that you know that are in need of want, that, 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 that have a situation of want that you can bring before the Lord? And so forth and so forth and so forth. And you can just pray until you run out of time that you have to pray or you run out of psalm. And you're not saying those same old things. You're not just playing your tape recording back to God, but you're still praying persistently about those same old things. Would you, would you consider doing that? Would you consider working that into your devotions? And, and stop saying the same old things about the same old things, but don't stop praying persistently because that's what Jesus is calling us to do. Second, we need to move on. And, and, and let's look at, at the second way that Jesus says we should be praying. And that's also we should pray humbly. Look at, verse, look at verses 9 and 10 there. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Again, Jesus sets the stage for the parable that this is about, about people who trust in themselves, that they think they're righteous and they reject others who don't live up to their standard. And what does this mean when they approach God in prayer? Well, the parable has two characters again. There's the Pharisee who trusts himself. He's righteous. He's a religious Jew who thinks he's done everything externally that the law requires. And then secondly, there's the tax collector. You recognize he knows he's a sinner. He's hopeless if he thinks he can keep the law. 
And then look at how Jesus describes their prayers. Look at verses 11 and 12. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Look at this Pharisee's prayer. Think about what he's praying about. His whole prayer is about who? Himself, right? There are different Bible translations that will render this phrase differently. He's either standing by himself or praying to himself. Either one work, works as an interpretation. I like the, the, what the, the, the CSB translates as he prayed about himself. He thought he was praying to God. He thought he was praying. Jesus describes him as praying, but he was really only praying and talking about himself. I mean, look at his prayer. It starts like a Thanksgiving psalm, right? You think he's going to talk about God. I thank you, God. But then he doesn't talk about God. He mentions I five times. I thank you, God. I, 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 I. So instead of a prayer that's thanking God, he's actually thanking himself. Here's his prayer. I thank you, God, that I am so great. That's his prayer. I thank you, God, that you got me because you're sure lucky to have me. That, that's, that's his prayer. In contrast, look at the tax collector. Verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Look at his posture. He stood far off. He's not worthy because of his sin to come near the temple of God. He won't lift his eyes. He's not worthy as a sinner to even look up to heaven. He knows he's a sinner. He beat his chest in remorse and grief over his sin. And, and he prays like David in Psalm 51, David's psalm of repentance. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He knows he has no right to come before God in prayer. He has no righteousness to stand on before God. He knows that he's a sinner. He knows his sin is an act of rebellion against the God of the universe. All he could do was call on God to be merciful. Now, if you have a NASB or a CSB translation of your Bible, you have a little footnote that explains the, this word, be merciful. It's a unique term that, that, that Luke uses to describe this prayer. It can mean, in the footnote, to be propitious, propitiation, or to turn your wrath from me. That's the type of mercy that he's asking for. He's praying that he knows he's worthy of punishment. He knows he deserves God's wrath for his sin. And because that has no right, right to come before God, but he's praying that God would send something or someone to bear that punishment in his place as a substitute. That's what the temple was about right? Is that something died as a substitute for what you are trying to express to God. And he's saying, I need that type of substitute, that God would be so merciful to provide for me that type of substitute so I could come before God. <clears throat> and then look at Jesus' conclusion about this, verse 14. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus makes a divinely authoritative pronouncement. I tell you, only one of these two men is justified. Only one of them is righteous before God. Only one of these two men had their prayer heard. I like what one commentator says about this. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray, but only one of them really prayed. <clears throat> the Pharisee had this list of virtues. He thought, that's going to make me right before God. God will hear my prayer because I'm such a good person. And Jesus says, that's not the prayer God hears. The tax collector realizes he has nothing to stand on but, but the mercy of God. 
He has no merits or righteousness of his own. He can only appeal to God's mercy. And Jesus says, that's what prayer is about. That's one is justified. That's the prayer that God hears and answers. Let me ask you a question. Why should God answer your prayers? I mean, mean, think about it. Why should God answer your prayers? If we think that there's about it, there's really significant reasons why God should not answer our prayers. Isaiah 59 verse 2 says this, your iniquities, your sins, have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So if you have, if you have sinned, God should not hear. Uh-oh. Right? I mean, what does that mean? Does that mean God doesn't know what you're saying? What? No, no, of course God knows, right? The Bible teaches us that God is omniscient. omniscient. He knows all. He's omnipresent. He's all present. Well, does that mean God doesn't hear us like, A teenager doesn't hear their mom say, clean your room. What, mom? I'm sorry I didn't hear that. No, we know that's not the way that God acts. We also know that God is just. Well, how is it that God does not hear our prayer when there's sin in our lives? Well, he does not hear with a view to answer, right? He does not hear with a view to answer as long as we have, we're separated from him by our sin and our rebellion, So it gets back to that question. Why should God answer our prayers? Jesus' parable says it doesn't matter how good you are. It's not about a matter of I'm a good person or I'm a good Christian or I go to church every week or I read my Bible every day. That's not the reason God hears and answers our prayers. Jesus says it's not about us at all, but because of the mercy of God. He provided a way for our sin to be paid for through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, that's the gospel. That's the good news, that Jesus Christ is the reason that we can be reconciled to God. Jesus is the reason we can know that God hears and answers our prayers, that we can come boldly for him because Jesus has opened a way so we can come and bring our prayers and petitions to the Father in heaven. That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. See, that's not a magic formula. It's not like abracadabra, right? I'm praying these things abracadabra in Jesus' name. Okay, Got it, right? That's, that's not what that means. You can say the words in Jesus' name and not actually pray in Jesus' name. Guess what? You cannot say in Jesus' name at the end of your prayer and actually pray in Jesus' name. It's not about those actual words. We pray in Jesus' name, realizing I have no reason to stand before God in my name, in my worthiness, and expect that God's going to answer my prayers. I don't come because I expect him to answer my prayers because of how great I am. But I don't come in my name. I don't come in my worthiness. I come in Jesus' name because of what he has done in my place for my salvation. So, So because of what Jesus has done, we can boldly come to God in our prayers. And and we're so thankful for what Jesus has done that we pray for the things that Jesus would have us pray for. We pray in the way that Jesus would pray if he were praying those prayers with us. That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. That's why we can have full assurance and guarantee that God does answer our prayers, not because of me, but because Jesus has reconciled me to the Father. Now, Now, if you're here visiting with us this morning and you don't, know this this salvation and this reconciliation that Jesus has purchased for you, if you have not received that, I want to say welcome. 
We are so glad that you're here. We're so glad that you've joined us this morning, and you are welcome to join us anytime. But we want you to understand, we want you to know that the same mercy that Jesus is talking about is offered to the tax collector is the same mercy that Jesus is offered to you. That even though we have rebelled against God in our sin, that we have not lived as if he is God, God, we have lived as if we are our own gods or something else was God. We have rebelled against the God of the universe. Even though we have rebelled against God in our sin, God loves you. And God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life for you and to die on the cross for your sins in your place as your substitute. And how do we know that this is true? Because on the third day he rose again. Every historical evidence we have points to it, that Jesus rose again so that you can be forgiven of your sin, that you can be reconciled to God, that you can have your prayer, have that relationship now where your prayers are heard and that relationship forever with God in heaven. And it's offered to you as a free gift, completely free. It's a gift of grace if you would repent of your sin and turn to Jesus and trust in him in faith. If you're here this morning and you would like to know more about this gift of salvation, we would love to talk to you more. Please don't leave this morning without talking to the person who brought you or any member of our church. I'd love to talk to you. I'll be at the back after the service. And we'd love to tell you more about Jesus and this offer of salvation. Because he's the reason that we are reconciled to God. He is the reason that we know our prayers are heard. So, and that's the reason. How, why do we pray as, how do we pray as a church? We need to pray humbly, approaching God, not on the basis of our merits, but in the mercy of Christ. And finally, let's look at the last passage here. Third way we should pray. We should pray persistently. We should pray humbly. And the last thing we should do is we should pray dependently. Look at verse 15. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. So here Luke shifts from this Jesus' parables to an historical count about people coming and requesting things of Jesus. It's, again, it's still talking this, this prayer theme here. They're bringing their infants, or as the NIV and NASB says, they bring their babies to him. It's not just children in general, but Luke is telling us that these babies, these newborns, are being brought to Jesus. And they're bringing to him so that Jesus might touch them, might give them some sort of blessing. And the disciples do what? They rebuke them. Right? They rebuke them. Luke doesn't tell us why they rebuke them. It might be because they had the same attitude as the ancient world. The ancient world thought, thought very lowly of children because they thought children were just, just kind of, they, they were kind of just leeches, right? They, they really didn't offer anything, and they often just take, and sometimes they die, and they're just not worthy to focus any time and effort on. In fact, that's why you see in the, in the ancient world that there's such a, a, a high rate of, of child abandonment and infanticide. Or, or maybe the disciples thought, oh, I know children, but children are just a distraction. Jesus has more important things to do than children. They're just going to distract Jesus. We, we don't know what it is, but they had some sort of negative reaction to these children. But look how Jesus responds. Look at verse 16. But Jesus called them to him, saying, let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to, uh, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. So Jesus uses this as a teaching opportunity. He, he, he doesn't reject or marginalize the children. It's the opposite. He loves and welcomes them. Now, our English translations have, sometimes have a hard time with this verse, right? If you uh, grew up with the King James Version, it says, Suffer the little children to come to me. 
I know suffer meant something different in the 1600s, but it doesn't mean that anymore, right? So it doesn't mean, yeah, they can come to me, but they're going to suffer. Right? That, that's obviously not what it means. Um, most English translations will say, let the little children come to me. That's all right, but it almost seems like a weak suggestion. All right, let them come. Right? But that's not what Jesus is saying here. Uh, the NASB, I think, has this the best. The NASB says, permit them. Do not hinder them. This is, the, this is the type of forceful command that Jesus is giving. He's giving a command. He's expressing the importance that these children, these children must have access to Christ because of their importance to him. Let me just take a side note here real quick. We need to realize the importance and the precious place that Jesus has for children. And if Jesus cares so much for children, so should we as a church. Children are not an inconvenience. Children are not a distraction. Children are not something that should be seen and not heard. There are times in our worship service that you hear a baby cry, you hear a, a children, child giggling, and I think that's a blessing because Jesus would count it as a blessing. These are the ones that Jesus loves. And by the way, these are the ones that are going to be the future of the church. If Jesus so willingly takes them into his arms to care for them, to bless them, to, to, despite some of the challenges that they may bring, maybe, you know, if they're talking about little kids, there's probably snot involved, right? I've got little kids. That's just part of the deal. If Jesus would care for them as such, shouldn't the attitude of our church be the same? Because Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Notice that Jesus doesn't say the kingdom belongs to these, but to such as these. He isn't saying that all children, just by nature of being a child, have received God's kingdom. He's not saying that all children have innate goodness. They're all born with just perfect. They never sin. <laughs> we know that's not true, right? But he, see, Jesus is not advocating childishness. But he's saying that there's a quality that these children have. There's a childlikeness that's essential for entering God's kingdom. Let's, let's see how he explains this further. Look at the last verse there, verse 17. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. What does that mean? What does it mean to receive the kingdom of God like a child? Well, well think about how Luke just described this account. There is nothing, it's a positive quality that, the, that he's describing these children have. They're babies, they're infants, they just sit there right? It's not about that they're so nice. It's not about that they're so cute. It's not, that, that's not what he's talking about. It's not the virtue that they have, but the position they have. The very thing that the disciples rejected is what the children have that's so admirable. It's that they're, they're dependent. It's, it's, that, it's what they lack. They were small. They were powerless, and they know it. They depend on their parents for everything. And that's the exact type of person, Jesus says, that receives the kingdom of God. It's those who trust God with a simple faith and dependence. It's those who trust God like a child trusts, like a baby trusts its mother sitting in its arms. Right? That, that, and, that, and this fits what Jesus, what, what Jesus is saying here about prayer. How do we approach God through Christ? How, how do we come to him in prayer? We, how do we pray as a church? We pray dependently. We need to pray so dependently that we are like a child looking to our Heavenly Father with faith and dependence, saying, if God doesn't do it, there's no hope. 
I got nothing in myself. It's got to be God. So let's ask ourselves, as, as we are, are wrapping up here, how do we pray? Do, do you and I pray as totally dependent on God? When, when you see a little girl just, just reaching for her mother, because the only thing that's going to fix that situation is mom. That's all that, that's all that matters is at our posture with our Heavenly Father. It's not, I got this, God, but the only thing, the only hope I have, the only help I have is our Heavenly Father. Or do you have an attitude with most things in life? You got it. God, I got these things. I got that. I got that. If there's something big, I'm glad you're on call. Let's be honest. I don't know about you, but that can be my attitude sometimes. This, this is not a, a preaching here. Okay, church, let's, you guys got to work on this. This is a us got to work on. I got to work on this. I am convicted. I need to be more dependent on God. What does my prayer life reflect on how dependent I am on God? I love this quote from Robert Murray McShane. He was a pastor over two centuries ago, but this quote about prayer is still true. Listen to this quote. What a man, or you could say, or woman, is alone on his knees before God that he is and no more. Let me read that again. What a man is alone and on his knees before God, that he is and no more. What we are in prayer, how we pray, how often we pray, that reveals much about ourselves and what we think, how dependent we are upon God. So, so let me ask you, what are you going to personally do to grow in your dependence upon God? Isn't he the one that we want and we need and we must depend on? Do you have a devoted time with God each day in prayer? If not, that's the place to start, my friends. Where is it on the priority list? And then beyond that, when you go throughout your day, do you see opportunities to grow in your dependence upon God, to pray for the big and the little things, to pray for the needs and to offer God thanksgiving as we depend on God throughout the day? Do you have a time when you regularly pray with your family? Do you have a time when you regularly pray with your spouse? If you are single, do you have a time when you regularly pray with your roommates? If you have Christian roommates, do you have a time when you regularly pray with your close friends? It's my prayers, it's starting to see here, it's not just about my prayers, it's also about how we pray together. So think about this as a church. The way we pray reflects our way that we as a church are dependent upon God. So are we praying with the church? Are you praying with the church? I'm so thankful for Elias's prayer this morning because it wasn't just a time when, when Elias or someone comes up and does a, a, a corporate prayer. It's like, okay, he's praying. I just, I'm just going to wait for the next song to come up, right? No, no, they're leading us in prayer. This is our opportunity to pray along with them. They're helping guide us in some of the things that we should be praying for. But praying for, as a church, is much more than just what happens here on Sunday mornings or, or, or prayer meetings when they happen on Sunday, during Sunday school. It's about our life together as a church. Do you take the opportunity to pray with one another as a church? This afternoon, if you go out to lunch together, or, or this evening, if you're having dinner, having someone over for dinner, let me ask you, easy application. Somebody ask, how can I be praying for you? Very easy application. How can I be praying for you? And then guess what you should do? Just pray for it, right? Really easy application, how we can live this out. If you're in discussions about difficulties with, with work or difficulties in the community or difficulties that people are complaining about the culture or politics, guess maybe that's a great opportunity to say, you know what, let's pray about this. 
Let's be in prayer. Let's pray with the church. And finally, let's pray for the church. My friend, if, if you aren't praying for the church, then, then, then we have no hope of, to be able to do what God's going to do. We want to see God's kingdom come. We want to see God's will be done. We want to see God's name be hallowed in our church. If we want to see those things happen, we need to pray for our church. Is praying for the church part of your regularly same old thing? Do you pray for the members of this church? Here's a great suggestion I, I love to do. Pray through the, through the directory. I like it because it's not just a name. It's a, it's a picture, right? Pray through the directory. Start with A. Pray for a few people. Put a bookmark there. Start up tomorrow. When you get to Z, guess what you can do? You go back to A, right? It, Pray for the various ministries of the church. Take your bulletin and, and pray for some of the things that are going on. I, I'm thankful for Joe sharing about the ways that we could be praying for the pizza outreach this Friday. Pray for the leadership of the church. We desperately need your prayers. Pray for the elders and the deacons and the deaconesses. And then pray for the church as a whole. Let me share with you the ways I pray for the church. These are on my same old things list. that I, I rotate one new every day. Some of them I have on my everyday list. But here's some different things we can pray for the church. I, I pray that our church would be Christ-centered and gospel-centered. We would not be distracted by other things. Pray, pray for our church that we would grow in our love for one another, in our community with one another, as Steve talked about in our edification last week. Pray for our church that, that God would develop leaders for our church, uh, to develop those who would lead ministries and deacons and deaconesses and elders. Pray that, that God would give us a heart for missions and a heart for the lost around the world. Pray that God would, would give us a heart for holiness, to, that he'd grow us and sanctify us individually and as a church. My prayer for every Sunday is that we would learn and apply God's word, that as a church we would not just be hearers of the world, but be doers of the word. Pray for the unity of our church, that, that, that we'd work to preserve that unity. And, and, then, and I pray every day that God would use us as, as a, a, a witness to this mountain community, that he would build in us a culture of evangelism where we have a heart for the lost of those around in our community who do not have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And finally, let me ask you for one other way to pray for our church. Over the last couple of years, we've been working through this, this, this transition, and, and I'm thankful for the elders and, and Pastor Bob and as we've worked through this leadership transition, but we're still working on it. And so we need, your we need your prayers as we work through that, as we look to the future of this church, and what does God have that God's will would be done in this church? Would you pray for the future of our church as we look for, for guidance in that way? So let me ask you, as you make your to-do list this week, where's prayer on it? Our Savior assumes we will pray. He expects us to pray. He teaches us how to pray. He died on the cross so you could be reconciled to God so you have the boldness to be able to pray. And our health and impact of the church is going to be directly related to our prayers. So let's be a church who prays. Let us pray persistently, continually, because God loves his people and hears and answers their prayers. Let's be a, prayer, a church that prays humbly, that we boldly approach God, not because of our merits, but because of his mercy in Christ. And let's be a church that prays dependently, that we would continue to grow in our dependence on God through our prayers like a child that's looking to our Heavenly Father. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you. I thank you that you teach us these things because you know we need them. Father, that you know that we need to be reminded. You know that we need to be stirred up. You know that, that, that we need to be reminded of the importance because we get so easily distracted. Father, I know I do. There are so many other good things that we 
We sometimes don't see the effect of prayer. We, we don't pray persistently, and we do lose heart because we, we let sometimes opposition to other things distract us from our prayers. But let us redevote ourselves to prayer because of who you are, because of what you've done for us, because of how you've directed us, and because of what you want to do through us and our church. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.